Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Guardian. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books podcast with me, Claire Armistead. And me, Richard Lee. This week, Richard talks to the Scottish poet and essayist Kathleen Jamie about climate change, the North and death. And later, we speak to TV producer David Parker about another writer with a strong connection to the natural world. But first, the poet Kathleen Jamie won the Forward Best Collection Prize in 2000 and 2004 and the Costa Poetry Award 2012 with her collection, The Overhaul. But she's also a talented writer in prose, exploring Scotland and the North in 2005's Findings and Sightlines, which appeared in 2012. When she came to the studio to talk about her latest work in prose, Surfacing, she began by taking us to the far west coast of Alaska, where a village elder is casting his eye over the latest finds from an archaeological dig. There was one elder who was particularly interested in the dig. The name he used was John Smith. John was a youthful 68 or 70, small of stature. Like most of the men, he usually wore thick check lumberjack shirts and workman's jeans. He'd often drop by of an evening to see the day's finds, especially any pieces in walrus ivory, because he himself was a carver. One day, the excitement was an earring that had been found on site, carved of walrus ivory. It was a flat platelet, about a centimetre square, with two smaller pendant circles, a bit like owl eyes. The plate itself had been carved with a dot amid concentric circles. John took the earring into his hand, turned it, scrutinising it. How old is this? he asked. 500 years. How'd they do that without metal? Make those perfect circles? He looked at us and said with reverence, What kind of people were they? Your kind of people, John. We'd often hear John make remarks of wonderment and of sadness for the culture which was past. There are no Eskimos anymore, he said, all gone. John could remember sealskin-covered kayaks on the river, all gone now, and dog teams and dog sleds. Now everyone uses outboard engines and snow machines. Too much noise. Do you know how to travel by dog sled? We asked. Yeah, I know. He nodded, paused. You need seven dogs, smart ones. They will find their own way home. He made a motion with his hands, exactly like the paws of a running dog. Surfacing brings together three strands. There's a a trip to Alaska where you spent time digging up the remains of a Yupik village that was abandoned 500 years ago, and a trip to Orkney where the archaeologists are discovering objects that have been buried for thousands of years. There's also a section exploring a trip you took to Tibet 30 years ago, a journey which required a kind of archaeology of a sort of more personal kind. Was that the kind of connection, all the digging? I didn't, I, I didn't and I never do set out with, with a theme in mind. It's only after the whole thing's done, after many years. No, I can look back over this, this accumulation of, of work and think, oh, that's what it's about. So in this case, it seemed that, um, well, surfacing became the eventual title because every piece I'd written seemed to be linked by things coming to the surface, be it of the earth physically or, as you say, um, mentally 
emotionally. Yeah, because that's very much the experience as a reader. You, As a reader, you realise that you've gone somewhere else, but somehow it feels right that you've gone there. That's how you assemble it, is it? You kind of follow the thread and see where it takes you. Yes, yes, in, in hope and and faith that it will cohere in the end. It would be so much simpler if I could set myself a theme and say, <laughs> right, Catherine, you're, for your next book, you're going to concentrate on... Bananas. Bananas, you know, and bananas of the world, you know. A lot of air miles, but it would... <laughs> give, me, give me something to aim for, but I can't, yeah. I can't work like that. In Quinnahawk, you find a mixture of ancient and modern ways of living. You find hunter-gatherers, as you say, with a grocery store, which made me think that William Gibson's line about the future is already here, it's just unevenly distributed, could also apply just as much to the past. Does that would mean the past is here? The past is still here. Oh, yes. But yeah, just unevenly distributed. That's... Since I was a teenager, I've been fascinated by the way the past is, is manifest in the present to the extent I wanted to be an archaeologist when I was younger, but um, for various reasons didn't. But I'm still, I'm still alert to that and still fascinated by it. Yes, it's, it's here amongst us, you know, ticking notes, I think. And, the, and sometimes more revealed than at others. Yeah, for sure, physically and, and as, as you say, emotionally. And I'm fascinated also by what in a hundred or a thousand years will be remaining of us and if if we are spared and live that long what will people in the future look back to us and say what were they doing <laughs> no, which i think is, will be the case yeah absolutely i mean there's there's kind of stuff isn't there i mean there's there's stuff that you find in in alaska there's arrowheads dice wooden masks and so on there's also stories that handed down for generations the the, the people you say they didn't give information they instead tell incidents and anecdotes like coming at a subject sideways not straight on so What's the difference between giving information and, and, and telling an anecdote? What, what do you gain? Well, um, I wasn't there long enough to, to get deeply or understand deeply how that, that their culture works. But I did get the strong impression that, that information is shared and is held in common because in a hunter-gatherer society, you will starve otherwise. Whereas in our society, information is power, as you know very well, in a newspaper building. Yeah, and power accrues information and, and guards it. So it's the withholding of and the, and the distributing of exactly. that gets so you access. In, in that um, society, which is still largely a hunter-gatherer one, you can't withhold information. You know, if the, if the geese are arriving, if there's a bear in the dump, you know, everybody's got to know. You know, whereas ours, well, it gets worse every day. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's it's... It's extraordinary because it's almost like a manifesto for the book. This idea of looking at something sideways is that is that very much is that your own personal method as well? In as much as I'm not an activist and I'm not a plan- pamphleteer, I'm a poet. You know, and Emily Dickinson famously tell the truth but tell it slant. So there may be something in that. When you when you when you meet someone who's been collecting stone arrowheads. Um, but she tells you that she's never been to visit the dig where the archaeologists mm. are, are, are mm-hmm. discovering things that are, things that have been that are being melted out of the tundra by the approaching mm. seas. And uh, you say that you didn't want to press for explanations, which made me just stop for a moment. Isn't isn't that kind of the writer's job to, no. to ask awkward questions? No, no, it's a journalist's job, and uh, the, the, which is a different thing. A different thing altogether. I much prefer an approach which doesn't interrogate people. They didn't ask me to come there and interrogate them. Why should I? You know, and there's, there's, there's sensitivities and things withheld and things unsaid that I have to respect as well. And uh, yeah, and I think that what I do discover comes out of listening rather than out of interrogating. Hmm. And you discover different things by that process. I should imagine so, yes. It'd make yourself slightly more popular as well. <laughs> you know?
<laughs> Very much so, I'm sure. Um, uh, but I'm just wondering, I'm wondering if, if you can put your finger on what the difference is between those two things. Between interrogating and... The things you find when you do those. If you are to interrogate, what do you miss? If you're You miss the gift, I should imagine. And when people do divulge something, it's, it's a gift given and one would talk freely given. Uh, you also say that people in Quinnahawk notice, you say, the opposite of our contemporary urban living. They're very, very attuned to the, to, to the natural world and landscape around mm. them, absolutely have to be. So it's refreshing to be with people who are, who are acutely aware of what's going on, what's arriving, what's growing, how the clouds are, when you know our, our society is less so. We'd give that over to well, give it over to experts, don't we? Mm, absolutely. You also say that whenever they talk about food, it inevitably comes a conversation about the land or the sea. Yeah, yes. Again, are these kind of ways of pointing out sideways again, pointing out sideways just how unnatural 21st century modern living is? I guess so. If, if your food comes immediately from, from the land and the sea around you, and yes, you're not going to test it. There is a there is a grocery store in the village, which is a, a very strange thing. But by and large, the people are getting fish from the river and you know, snaring birds and what sometimes happening walruses. It's full on hunter gathering, and so therefore their their immediate source of food is still the land mm. and still the sea. Mm. And so if you are talking about the food on your plate, they immediately say, "Oh, you know, caught it yesterday." And, and where it was from, and, and, and where it's from, and why, why that's coming, why the migration of these these salmon is arriving now, and once the salmon have gone through, something else will be in season. You know? But it's a culture that's on; it's under threat in some sense. I, mean, you, I was wanted to ask about the walrus um, because I remember that one, uh, that in the book that one elder talks about how uh, he insists that they have to remember; they've got to remember these things because um, it, it, because. If the planes stop flying and no food comes in, we've got to remember how to live. Indeed. It's probably true for all of us, but they're acutely aware of it, and we ain't. But that was the thing, I mean, because here in The Guardian, we're three days away from the supermarkets running out of food if the lorries stop running. Well, just so, that's what they say, isn't it? You're two days away from a, from a bread riot. Mm. You know? But, I mean, is that partly why you wanted to go north? Because it's kind of so more, so much more starkly pictured. I do like the, 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 stark, the starkness of the north. Yes, I do like it when the trees stop. <laughs> Never mind the aeroplanes. I like that kind of landscape, but it was the the thought. What attracted me to that particular place was the idea that this the evidence of these people's cultural past was being revealed to them because of climate change, which was raising the sea levels and eroding the land. And and that that little nexus found absolutely fascinating. You know? mm. Because, I mean, I'm not sure if we've explained already that the, the, the dig, the archaeological site, owes its existence to the fact that the tundra is being swept mm -hmm. away. Yeah, it's right right on the very edge of the land and the rising sea is very quickly eroding the land and the tundra is thawing. So the permafrost, which had things in its grip, is now loosening that grip. And the upshot is that this village, which had been buried, is now revealed you know, and it's a pre-contact village, which means that everything that pertained to the people's hunter-gatherer lifestyle is intact there, and so it predates any any contact with missionaries, especially you know, and with with European settlers who told these people that their life way was you know just ignorant savagery. So they're coming out at a time of intense self-doubt, you know, and these objects, these exquisite artifacts, are. So the, the archaeologists hope revitalising and regenerating a, a cultural confidence. 
a, a time when they're sorely going to need it because of climate change. Because, I mean, you're looking back into the distant past, but because of things happening right now, and that's the same in Orkney as well. It, it, it's um, a strange thing that the Yupik village is only, in quotes, only 500 years old, but 500 years ago they were living a completely hunter-gatherer life way. The village in Orkney is Neolithic, so in terms of, of human development, if you like, it comes after hunter-gatherer, but it is 5,000 years old because we in Europe adopted farming and the people in the remote remote places where things can't grow, basically, retained their hunter-gathering life way much, much longer. So time gets all into a swirl, which, which I quite like. It's also very apt for examining something like the climate crisis, which is at such inhuman timescales that we find it difficult to think about. It is difficult to think about and, and you know, a, I think it helps if you don't think of time as linear, but um, as I say in the book, think of it as a spiral and things coming around and going around and coming into proximity with each other. I can cope with with a thousand years, five thousand years, even ten thousand years, but once we get onto geological time scales, who can think like that? It's amazing. You know? It's a different kind of brain, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess, but uh, the, I mean, I was struck by the woman who runs the youth club on Westray, who says that uh, even though we know we 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 can't go on like this. We, we wouldn't go back either. Yes, yeah, we I mean, do to, seem to be... To the stone ploughshare and the early exactly death. Exactly that, exactly. Uh, we're, stuck, we're, we're stuck on these kind of zero-hours contracts. We've got the rising seas lapping at our feet, but we still want to watch Netflix and get a takeaway. I mean, <laughs> do, you, do you also feel the pull of turbo capitalism and all its well, terribleness? Well, I do, I do like my laptop and, you know, yeah, I wouldn't want to go around in a hair shirt and eating... God knows what, you know, eating seaweed, no. no. <laughs> but we're going to have to find a way of navigating this, aren't we? Yeah. It's, it's exciting times. Yeah, because the idea of a return is, it might appear appealing at first. The death stalks the book as well. There's that realisation in Kinnehock that you'd never be here again. And then all the way through, and then at the end you find your, your father finishing his dram in his chair. Did you, did you know that... It was going to be about death. No, because my dad's death um, occurred much after everything else in the book. But it found its place in the book because we are talking about time and, and human lives and how our, our mortal lives are pegged against a, a greater span of time, you know. And and as I, I'm now in my late fifties, so I have a sense of the this, the arc, the shape of a life that you don't have when you're twenty, you know. But now, if I'm, if I'm spared, I can get a sense of that shape and pinning that, as I say, against a, a sense of greater time spans. I, I just find all that stuff fascinating. Time, I think, it's my obsession. Now, you finished the book in, in a Selva Scura, yeah, here in the Anthropocene, surrounded as we are by a savage, dense and harsh wood, is the answer to concentrate on the world around us. I do wonder if, if noticing... The simple act of noticing can be almost a political act when we're surrounded by by so-called leaders who are horribly high-handed and disregarding, you know. And it may not, we may not win, but it is an act of resistance against that that attitude, you know, of gross dismissal. So noticing and being in in if a moment, it might not save the world, but you know, it can just. You mean you're not doing what they want you to do, just for a minute. But what about what about dissent? What about blocking up traffic like Extinction Rebellion? I think that's absolutely marvellous, but um, for me personally, I'm not, a, I'm not an activist. 
I thought, it might be, yeah, you never know. Hitherto, I haven't been an activist. Um, because of what you said about coming at things slant, I think um, an activist knows what they want, they can articulate exactly what they want, and they know how to get it. But writers like myself, and I'm a poet primarily, we don't yet know what we want. Only after we've done it, you think, ah, right, that's what that was about, as I said to you. So good luck to them. Good luck to the young ones. Good luck to the protesters. But I think there are, or at least I hope, that I'm doing something, but in an alternative mode. I'm playing to my own strengths as a, as a writer. I want to ask about that. What, I mean, what about hope? Is that something that a writer like yourself, is that something you can do? Do you know, I was just thinking about this, this coming, coming down on the train. Why am I hearing the word hope? Well, maybe it's obvious why I'm hearing the word hope so much. But why am I so often being asked if I'm purveying hope or if I have hope? I'm detecting a note of desperation coming into the question. Where, where do we find hope? Yeah. I don't know any more than anybody else. Yeah. If I was peddling hope, I'd be some sort of religious minister, wouldn't I? Which I ain't. That was Kathleen Jamie, and Surfacing is published by Sort Of Books. She leaves us with a very interesting question, um, Richard, which bubbles up every now and then, which is the question of hope in literature. Is it the duty of writers to um, create hope for readers, or should they be able to find it for themselves? No, I'm always very uh, alarmed about giving writers duties. I think I was saying this on the podcast last week. But, I mean, I must say that uh, we could all do with a bit of hope right now. So I find myself turning to books that uh, aren't entirely bleak, rather more than ones which are heading towards oblivion. And that's something the publishing industry itself has picked up on, isn't it? And there are quite a lot of, uh, there's this whole uplit genre, which we might come to a little bit later. But um, where does this leave dystopia, which we've been told is the, has been the craze of the last 10 years? Well, I'd sort of had this vague feeling that dystopia was kind of gone, finished, or was passed. It was a wave that had receded. But actually, when I look, went to look back at what's been published this year, I mean, there's Margaret Atwood, the joint booker winner with The Testaments. There's John Lanchester with The Wall, Joanna Kavanagh with Zed, Ben Smith's Doggerland, Sandra Newman's The Heavens, Joanne Ramos' The Farm. I mean, it's just still coming and coming and coming and coming. But, I mean, perhaps this vague sense that I think I had that dystopian fiction was on the wane is because there was that massive peak around the time of The Hunger Games, which I think the third of those was published in 2010, I think. And there was this slew of titles kind of in that in the wake of that massive success. And perhaps that has begun to fade. Or maybe publishers have begun to wake up, as you say, to the, the commercial implications of books that are entirely bleak. Um, it's interesting that uh, I'm thinking about John Lanchester um, in this context. The hope that he offers at the end of the war is that there is somebody still there to tell the story. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, there's a crumb for you. It is a crumb, you know, and so, so, but, but this is a bigger point, isn't it, about how writers create a sense of hope. It's not all about they go dancing off into the sunset, is it? It's, it's sometimes, no. it, is, it is as small as that, a, just a tiny little morsel of, of, of the possibility of continuation. And I mentioned um, Uplit before, and um, this has been, do you think this is a bit of a busted flush as well? I mean, it sort of peaked with Ellen Oliphant is completely fine in 2017, a couple of years ago, quite a long time in 
publishing terms? Yes, that was a big year for it. The first in the wave, we might like to say, might be the unlikely pilgrimage of Harold Fry, which was Rachel Joyce's in, in 2012. And then there was The Trouble with Goats and Sheep, another notable uplit title in 2016. But you're right, the year of it was really was 2017 with Eleanor Oliphant and also Matt Haig's How to Stop Time, which is very much a kind of positive sort of spin on the science fictional kind of uh, love story. Matt's um, character, Tom Hazard, the, the appropriately named, has this lovely line, why, why worry about the future? It always happens. That's the thing about the future. <laughs> I mean, but the thing is, we, we, we're actually in a p- position now where, where that isn't a given anymore, is it? I mean, with all this panic over, over climate change. Yes, with people predicting societal collapse within five years or whatever it is. So it does feel like the future is rather more tenuous than once it was. Since 2017, when that novel came out, which means that Matt was thinking about it and writing about it a couple of years earlier, that the the landscape has really changed. You know, there's also this feeling that that nothing could be as bleak as the news we have at the moment, which is not just about um, climate. It's also about the the wave of right wing populism going across the world, dictatorships resurfacing. So perhaps all the dystopian fiction that we actually are still publishing, it turns out, um, is beyond that idea of trying to compete with a reality that's already bleak, which I suppose brings us back to Margaret Atwood. Yeah, when when I I interviewed Margaret and um, Bernadine Evaristo um, just before, just after they'd won, on the morning after they'd won the book, and uh, and I actually asked them, um, you know, whether they felt hopeful. And they both didn't feel hopeful, <laughs> inevitably. But it did raise the question of what they've done with their novels. And they both said interesting things. Mar- Margaret Atwood said a pessimistic ending would be to kill everyone off in a, in a novel like hers. And she said that the, the, the ending of the Testaments is not optimistic for everyone in the story, but it does signal the beginning of the end. Or, as Churchill said, this is not the end. It's not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning and maybe the end of the beginning is optimistic enough in the circumstances, <laughs> which is, again, that's coming back to the crumb of hope, John Lanchester's crumb of hope. But Bernadine said something rather different. She said she, too, was feeling it, finding it very, very hard to be positive in the, pos- in the current climate. But she said, but with the characters, I did not want to present 12 black women who were defeated by life, even though that is sometimes the case. So there's definitely hope in each of their narratives without it getting saccharine. And for her, that's a question about giving them some sort of power over their destinies and their lives, even when they're very old or they're very disadvantaged socially or economically. There's more than just a crumb there, isn't there? Yes. So so I think, you know, I think that, you know, the, and, and it's, maybe it's not a coincidence that these two novels won this literary prize in this year. Um, they, they, they offer something, some sort of vision beyond the 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 terrible trudge of blackness and bleakness with which we are confronted at the moment. After the break, we'll be hearing a voice from the past. Welcome back to the Guardian Books podcast, where we're heading to a pond in Gloucestershire. Well, we're down at the bottom of the valley on the edge of Slad. Uh, this is really our village pond. It's, uh, it's about half a mile, but it was the centre of all our juvenile uh, recreations, summer bathing and winter skating and general gathering together. It, we called it Squire Jones's Pond. He was he uh, uh, he glorified in having that this ancestral or, or almost feudal possession of this place. But he never held us. He never checked us, uh, our license. We were unlicensed and could do what we wished. But it's still a, a free gathering place, and it's inhabited by coots and more hands and dab chicks. 
That was the voice of rural England, more specifically Laurie Lee, a perennial fixture on the exam syllabus with his vivid memory of his country childhood, Cider with Rosie, and his moving portrait of 1930s Spain as I walked out one midsummer morning. Lee was talking to the TV producer David Parker in 1994 in one of a set of interviews recorded to mark the writer's 80th birthday. Now Parker has transcribed these interviews in which Lee records his village youth and published them as a short book, Down in the Valley. He joins us from Bristol, which is about 30 miles from the village where Lee grew up. Slad is in um, just north of uh, Stroud. It's one of the five valleys running into the town, and um, it's the one that Laurie Lee made famous inside with Rosie, of course. And um, it was famous historically because all these five valleys were... Um, were driving woollen mills for the for the woollen industry in the 18th century. So what was it like when you met him in 1994? It was extraordinary, actually, because um, he told me on the phone and his agent had told me that uh, he didn't do interviews, certainly not television interviews. So when, um, when I wrote to him to ask him if he'd do one for me, um, he telephoned me at home and um, my son answered the phone on, a, on a, an answer machine. And he was charmed, I think, by my son's answer and invited me to come up to Slad to the pub, to the Woolpack, lovely pub, by the way, uh, to meet him. And, um, and we had a terrific hour. And then um, I think we just got on, actually. I was surprised how well we got on. But at the end of the conversation, he said, why don't you come with me in your car and I'll take you to one or two places around the, around the, the valley. And he took me to three or four places, the, the Pond, Bull's Cross, Swift's Hill, and in each location... He got out of the car and he told me a story and it was absolutely fabulous, mesmerising actually. And I thought, what a wonderful storyteller this man is. And, um, and I persuaded him to let me come back with um, a tape recorder and I taped him. And that seemed to go well. And then I persuaded him to let me come back with a film camera and we filmed him. And I spent five glorious days in the spring of 1994 with Lurie in these wonderful, wonderful locations. And that's how you remember him then, as, as a storyteller? A fantastic storyteller, yes. Um, a storyteller who could always end his particular story with a wry smile and a, a sense of humour. So if one example I'll just give you when we were talking to him about poetry and um, he was remembering how he wrote a really marvellous poem about winter called A Christmas Landscape, and he finished it, and then he said, that's seven o'clock, the church bells are ringing, the pub's open, I think we should stop. And just, just like that, he was really superb, actually. Yeah. And so is that the secret of his enduring appeal? I think his enduring appeal, it's, it's a complex appeal, I think, actually, but one, one element of it is, I think, this sense of a period... Uh, looking back on a period that where we felt perhaps more comfortable with our lives than we feel today. I mean, he paints this rosy picture, doesn't he, really? Sided with rosy. Rosy's got a double-edged meaning because it was a rosy world, although in the interviews with me he said that don't, don't be mistaken in thinking that we weren't anything but incredibly poor. We were, but we didn't feel poor. And um, just uh, stories about playing around that landscape, playing around the pond, you know, investigating the the world of the young adolescents, men, girls and boys, is something I think that um, appeals to people. But then I think also his writing is sort of universal, I think, actually. Um, if you take, as I walked out, I mean, somebody leaving home, taking a chance, going away, working on a building site, you know, breaking away from family and then coming back to family. These are some of the sort of universal universal truths, I think, that we all face as people growing up. And I think he appeals to that 
across different generations and across different time periods. And his writing is so beautiful. It's so easy to read. It's so easy to read aloud. I mean, so it's a, he's got a beautiful style, I think. His style was something of a reaction to the ways of speaking which were all around him, as he explained back in 1994. They had very compact vocabularies, but they told stories with such command of their vocabulary. They were perhaps 200, 500 words. They never had to hesitate and grab and use second-hand cliches and say, at the end of the day, let's have a level playing field. And having said that, and and um, all this jargon you get with second-hand Westminster, Westminster, Palace of Westminster, not Ab- Westminster Abbey, unfortunately. Well, that's gone. Too. They teach, they they speak the same language now. But to have that command of language that this, these valley people had, they could tell a story as the, the mariners in Homer's day must have been able to tell, a complete command of a, a very af- effective vocabulary, born in them, nourished in them as they grew up. And they could set your hair on in retelling the old dramas of the valleys. I've tried to do my best to keep away from that because I was, I, I realized it in telling a story, if you use somebody else's language, they're not going to be interested. They're not going to read it. But try and describe something as you're looking at it and engage their attention by telling them what it was like to see this for the first time as a boy. Laurie Lee speaking to David Parker. Down in the Valley is published by Penguin Classics. Thanks to David and to Kathleen Jamie. And that's all for this week. Next week, we chat to Rory McLean and Luke Harding about Russia. If you have any thoughts about this week's episode, get in touch on Twitter at Guardian Books or on the podcast page. And please do subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. But for now, from me, Claire Armistead. Me, Richard Lee. And our producer, Esther Apoku-Jenny. Thanks for listening and goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.